and welcome to The Future of Business, where we discuss current business issues that will have a significant impact on the future of business in Ireland and beyond, and explore their possible consequences for people in business and for society more generally. I'm Vincent Wall, and today I'm joined by Dr. Graham Love, consultancy partner with Mazars, and by Dr. Annie Duna, president of the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, IADT, Dunleary. You're very welcome both. We're discussing the broad topic of third-level education in Ireland. Now, picking up from our last podcast, let's focus on the third-level campuses themselves. And let's start with the issues of equality, diversity and inclusion. It's a pretty vibrant topic globally at the moment. Annie, how do we rate here in Ireland? We rate, we're we're getting better in the sense that we are now taking this very seriously. So if you think about some things that we do badly in, Vincent, we do very badly in representation of women in senior posts. So there are only two presidents of universities and institutes of technology. I'm one of them. There has never been a female president of a university in Ireland's history, which is is pretty appalling. And if you look at the number of women who are professors and senior lecturers in those top posts, then they are severely underrepresented. So the government, I think, has woken up to this. And the Minister, Mary Mitchell O'Connor and others have been really pushing the diversity agenda and saying, you know, we need to get more women in those positions. We know the good women are out there. We know the talented women. So what can we do to get them there? So there's been a number of government initiatives, including reports, including women-only professorial, professorial posts, um, other initiatives that are aiming to increase the number of women at the top. So I think that's that's very important as, as a starting point. If I interpret the minister's thoughts correctly, I think she believes there has been a conscious bias on the part of the management and, and various uh, departments of universities to specifically select males over females. Do you think that's the case or do you think it's been a bit more like other industry sectors where a lot of women leave the workplace at, at a critical time in, in their career structures? No, I think there has been unconscious and conscious bias. So I think that there is definitely evidence um, from a number of high-profile places, including NUIG, NUI Galway, uh, where women were passed over and it would appear almost consciously for promotion. So you had situations where women were equally as qualified, had done uh, as much in the institution, had been there the same length of time and who weren't being promoted to posts. So I think, as in all industries, there is now a recognition recognition that that conscious bias took place and that we need to address that. There's also unconscious bias in the kind of assumptions that, that maybe you just made, Vincent, that if you come out of the industry, of, of the education to raise a family, you're going back in in a, a sort of lesser position or with less um, knowledge or experience. And we know that that's not the case. You know, women catch up very quickly. So I think that the unconscious bias, those assumptions we still make about who's good for what jobs, who does technology, who does nursing, whatever. I think it's both. It's unconscious and conscious. Bias. The good news is that we've woken up to this and we're beginning, as in all industries, I chair Screen Ireland, the film board, we've been looking at this as well. How can we increase the representation of women, of LGBTQ communities, of ethnic minorities in Ireland and of people with disabilities? I woke up to this, I can remember reading a paper in 2012, I used to work for Science Foundation Ireland and we had about 3,000 funded scientists and I remember I, I compiled a lot of the stats in the plan, in the planning function. And, you know, at around what you'd call mid-career level, the balance of scientists roughly favoured female, maybe 52, 48 type zone, you know. And But when it got to the what's called principal investigator, these are the very senior investigators, it was basically 90, 10. Mm. So there was an efflux of people that we had invested in for a number of years leaving the system in effect. 
at uh, somewhere between the mid-career and senior phase. So on its own, it's not the only argument, but as, a, as an economic argument, it was a terrible waste of investment mm-hmm. and productivity. Um, and I remember reading this paper. There's a very prestigious journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in America. And what they did is they took um, a, a, a single job um, uh, application and they selected 127, I think, faculty members from various universities. And they randomized them to uh, sort of fake female or male to the same CV and asked them to score it and value it. And there was a massive favoritism on the part of both male and female academics in the judgment of the mm. CV. So that refers to a massive level of unconscious bias. And as Annie said, we've woken up to this. There's now quite a bit of training. We, we do it in a lot of our funding agencies, etc. But it is uh, very significant and it is manifesting as we're talking about. And to accelerate the redress process that you say is underway, Annie, do you believe quotas in any sort of form are required? I think that that's a very interesting question, because if, if we look at the evidence, if we continue making progress in the same way as we are now, then the research says it would take between 10 and 20 years to get any kind of equality, parity. any kind of parity at all. So I'm a great believer in positive action. I'm a great believer in positive training programs in encouraging women in putting in supports for women in you know providing family friendliness, all sorts of things that will help both women and men, but particularly women. Quotas, I have come round to saying yes to. If you'd asked me that a year ago, I would probably have said no. But I've been talking about gender and education since 1974, since I was 18, and I joined the Sheffield Women in Education group when I went to the University of Sheffield. And things have moved at a glacial pace. So I now think in the same way as we've done with the houses here, the Oroctus, putting in quotas as a way of focusing, finding those women and those talent, I am now not against. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about Minister Mitchell O'Connor's professorial women-only posts, and a lot of people don't like them, men and women. But I actually think if they get women into those posts, if they start that ladder process for women, then no, I'm, I'm not against it. Ditto. Actually, and I, and I wasn't of that view before, but it was uh, you were being generous there in the 10 years. I think it's at least yeah, 20, 20 years yeah. on the current rate of change. And the scientist in me just looks at that, that, that data pattern and says, says, if you add my loss of talent argument I was making earlier, that is, simply doesn't make sense from an economic perspective as well as the moral one. I mean, we have a, what is it, a 13 or 14% pay gap in Ireland yeah. across the board. Yeah. Better than Europe, by the way. Europe's yeah, 17%. But what a lot of... Uh, your listeners may not know is that uh, there's a piece of legislation on the statute books at the moment, which as soon as the Brexit debacle is cleared, there I got it into the interview, everyone has to say the B word, uh, but as soon as it's out of the way, this legislation is going to go live very, very quickly. And companies are going to be required in the first instance, companies, I think it's over 250 uh, um, employees required to calculate their gender pay gap. This is coming. And then, you know, on beyond, it's going to go to 100 employees, I think, yeah. of 50. And then you're going to be like, what is it you're doing about this type of thing will be required legislatively. And I think we've got much better at the stats. You know, we, we didn't know what we didn't know a few years ago. So we're now collecting stats on gender, on ethnicity, on the pay gap, on promotion, on interview panels. So we're beginning to build up and understand the picture better to know how to then address it. And the broader issue of, of inclusion and diversity, I understand that about 25% of, of college entrants uh, do come through some sort of priority uh, mm-hmm. access routes, disability, uh, funding routes, uh, mature students. How, how do we rank? Are, are we getting better in that? We're improving on some aspects of yeah. it, I think, uh, certain aspects of it and not on others. Um, and I, I believe there's a... 
I suppose there's a policy angle to this, but we're back we're back in part to the funding piece because it takes extra resources to target previously hard to access cohorts. So that the idea is that you can get at people of socioeconomically different backgrounds, ethnic-wise, disability particularly. We're doing well in some of the mm. disabilities, actually. Uh, so it just shows you some of the interventions can work, but we're not going to achieve the kind of targets we hope for uh, at the pace we're currently going at. And we're back to the active intervention me me um, measures with appropriate financing. Mm. But they, they, Graham, have to start much earlier. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not doing well on, on the numbers of students from certain Dublin postcodes who end up in higher education compared to others. I mean, we know that evidence. You know, if you're from Dublin 4, your chances of ending up in higher education are significantly better than, than the other postcodes. Um, so I think, for me, third level can do a lot. We can do the here and there schemes, which you referred to. We can put in the additional supports. We want the additional resources to do that. But what we're doing and, and we really should be doing as a nation is going back to junior school and saying that has to start there. We have to start that work way back in primary school about dealing with the, the social issues, because if you can start solving that and through second level, you're more likely to get disadvantaged students into third level. And that whole question of the, the bias uh, against women generally in our third level system at teaching level, at management level, uh, at design and research level, Graham, that actually has practical implications in, in out in the workplace, out in the types of machines we use, all of that. Indeed it does because uh, it's not just in third level, I guess it's in in, uh, in companies that when they're designing and making products, uh, but probably, uh, you know, I wouldn't imagine many people know that uh, in car crashes, women are 17% more likely to die than men are something like 40% suffer 40% more serious injuries than men. And the reason behind this is the entire thinking and design of the safety systems is built around, I suppose, a male stature. You know, you know those dummies in the cars where the, the, the pillow explodes from the steering wheel, etc. That is generally done to a male physiology or a male physique, and that's one of the reasons for that. This goes further, I mean, I suppose, on a, a very anecdotal level, I was just saying to Annie earlier, NASA was meant to have its first all-female spacewalk there recently. And in fact, they couldn't do it in the end because they didn't have enough uh, spacesuits that were designed appropriately for women's bodies. I mean, that's, that's I suppose, more minor. But when you get to things like the, the car crash stuff I just spoke about, um, or even actually police stab vests, typically designed for the male. And what they've found, in fact, is because of women's biology that the, the jacket tends to ride up on the breasts, leaving the, the belly exposed. And it's actually uh, a real safety issue for female uh, army personnel and, and, and uh, in the police force, etc. So there's a kind of a thinking that applies to the design of experimentation, product testing, etc. Uh, go to Google, um, the hearing, Alexa and all these things. 70% more likely to understand a male voice than a female voice. Because so there's just not enough women in those the, teams the, that are designing. Women in the teams designing the, the AI that recognises the algorithm. So there's kind of what gets sometimes, sometimes gets referred to as a data bias, and it's in the thinking. And this but, is something we have to work on. And we can change that in yes. higher education because we can talk, as we do about universal design, we can talk about gendered design. And if we recognise, if we have students who are product designers or they are coding designers, they're designing the next Alexa, if we teach them to be aware of that and the whole gender bias, they can start to rethink how they design those products, how they design the software. Yeah. And I think that's really important for we'll higher get education. Get people at the start of the pipeline. And Absolutely. That's why it's such yeah. an important place. That design bias you've just both been discussing, I suppose, is a, is a long-term, almost hidden threat to women in some ways, uh, Annie. We've seen a much more overt threat to women in many ways, and it's a, it's a very hot topic on American university campuses now, the whole question of, of, of 
physical threats to women, mm. assaults, uh, sexual, uh, inappropriate sexual approaches to women on campus. What, what's the situation like on Irish campuses? We know now from recent research that's been done that actually there is a problem on Irish campuses. And and earlier this morning, Vincent, I was with the minister where she was launching a framework report on consent in higher education. So the student unions in Ireland and the students in general are saying, look, this is happening on our campuses. There is inappropriate touching, inappropriate verbal behaviour, inappropriate physical behaviour, all the way up to sexual assault and rape. So we now have a better picture from the students that that is happening. So institutions like my own and all the others are taking this very seriously now. So we're saying, you know, we need to have zero tolerance and that needs to be said on our campuses. The Me Too movement has done it in terms of creative industries, the film world. We are saying we will not tolerate sexist, racist, homophobic or inappropriate behaviour. And we need to train the students around that. Um, In our first year matters programme, which is our induction programme, we run consent workshops. So we're saying, you know, what is appropriate behaviour? How do you best interact with people who are on a different gender or a different sexual identity from you? What is appropriate from staff to students, from student to student? So we're putting in guidelines, we're putting in training, and we're also putting in sanctions. So, you know, if we have cases where a student is sexually harassed, those will go through disciplinary. We will say this is absolutely not tolerated on any campus. And I think that will give any student coming in the understanding and the comfort that they can be safe, they can express themselves no matter what their gender, and they can behave in a way that is appropriate towards others and will be behaved towards in that way as well. And is it a particular problem within the Irish context? Is it a particular problem perhaps in our third level campuses? Because one, we have large numbers of people congregating in the same place. And in many cases, particularly for younger people, I suppose they it may be their first opportunity out of the home environment. They express themselves in different ways and then open themselves to threat. I think it's partly that, yeah. If you're if you're away from home or, you know, you have access to, to more freedom and maybe more alcohol and, and all of that, that's certainly a factor. But I do think as well that you know, what's happening on social media doesn't help either because, you know, there's confusion on social media um, in terms of the imagery that's out there, the access to pornography, the access to inappropriate behaviour. And, you know, we're only beginning to research what effect does that have on how people actually behave face to face. So it's, it's multifaceted, I think. And finally, and as we speak, we don't know what sort of Brexit outcome will materialise, but assuming that uh, there is a deferral or a softer type of Brexit or some transition period for perhaps a year, year and a half, assuming that, does Brexit offer an opportunity or a threat to the Irish third level sector? Both. Um, I mean, the opportunity is that we're getting a lot more interest from students from Britain. And, uh, and academic staff. And academic staff. So, um, you know, both in my with my film hat on and my IEDT hat, when we're advertising jobs, we are getting people either who want to come back, who are Irish and living in the UK and, and now decided to return home, or who are British people who want to be part of Europe. And we're also getting, in terms of research, you know, um, projects that had been based in the UK and now saying we want to come and be based in Ireland, we want to be part of your European bid for funding and we're getting a lot of interest there. So there's an opportunity in growing student numbers, in doing more research projects, in attracting greater staff. Uh, There are issues as there are with Brexit about how it will work in terms of student fees, in terms of the visa issues for students. So there are problems that we will have to address once something finally happens, you know. I think one of the one of the big ones, one of the great success stories of the European Union and the post World War II project is the Erasmus program, 
you know, student exchange across Europe. In Ireland, I think we send uh, out about 3,000 per year and take in about 7,000 per year. As you can imagine, the UK, another English-speaking jurisdiction, is many, many multiples of that. If they end up being outside the European Union, there are going to be an awful lot of people wanting to come here. Now, I think that's wonderful, but there's a capacity issue. Yeah. Uh, in order to be able to do that, to do that well. So when you ask about opportunities and threats, uh, it's both, yeah. and it's, it depends. I suppose it depends very much how we choose to handle them. We leave it there. The fascinatingly broad and complex and and challenging topic of third level education, threats and opportunities. Dr. Graham Love of Mazars and Dr. Annie Duna, President of the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, Dunleary. Thanks indeed for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you, Vincent. Thank you for listening to The Future of Business with Vincent Wall and Mazars. We welcome any feedback to our podcasts and particularly your suggestions as to topics we should cover. You can comment and rate us wherever you find this podcast or on mazars.ie. Bye for now.